people are starting to see that as a society, data and the use of information is having an impact on us at so many levels. So it's not that people, I think, want to see technology companies not able to continue to innovate and change. It's actually a conversation that says, hang on a minute, part of what you're doing is actually using information that is core to me. And I need to feel that I can have some level of control and access and have some agency myself and that we have agency as a community about what happens with that data. Hi, I'm Christy. I'm Adam, and you're listening to The Foil Podcast. Where we talk about the opportunities and the risks of the data age. What it means for you and what it might mean for us all. Deanne, we're welcome to The Foil. I'm really excited to get the chance to talk to you today. Of course, we've known each other for such a long time and I've been on the journey with you as I've had the opportunity to observe your incredible work. Before we get into all of the work and the huge impact you make in philanthropy and as an investor... Could you share with me, how does a girl from Horsham get to be the chair of many incredible organisations around the world? Well, just lucky, I guess, Christy. Thank you. It's it's great to have this chance to talk with you. Look, I was very lucky to grow up in a small country town with a beautiful family who were really supportive of me. But, you know, it was also kind of the 70s and 80s in a small country town, Victoria. And it was sort of, you know, I felt I needed to explore broader horizons. And I had a fantastic group of girlfriends at high school who we all aspired to, you know, do something, be someone. We're all feminists by the time we were about 13 or 14, as I like to say, if growing up in Horsham in the 70s didn't make you a feminist, nothing would. And (laughs) I headed off to university went to law school. I did apply for NIDA first because I wanted to be a you know star of the stage and screen, but uh, they rejected me. So I went to law school <laughs> instead and um, ended up having a you know great career as a lawyer in the early days, Telstra, and then moved into a much broader business role at Ozstar, the pay TV company. And that was such a lucky opportunity for me because the senior management team was shareholders, we're a listed company, And, you know, that created a a capital pool for me to be able to then, once we sold that business to Foxtel sort of 10 years ago, around the time I met you, I was able to then move into more uh, of a role as an investor, company director, and and being able to help, uh, you know, I, I just get so much joy out of working with incredibly passionate people like yourself and Adam, who are founders and who want to make a profitable business that is actually making the world a better place. And and I think working with founders in that way is something I'm very passionate about. And I'm also very passionate about storytelling. And uh, so investing in films, uh, particularly films by Australian creative, uh, female creatives for the international market. That's kind of where I'm really, what I'm very passionate about. When Ostar was acquired by Foxtel, you had a clear vision for what you wanted to do next. And with your wonderful partner, Jules, created the foundation. Can you talk about what your vision was for philanthropy and investment when you started out on that journey? Yeah. So when we sold to Foxtel and, and, you know, I kind of moved into my new life, well supported by my fabulous husband, Jules, as you point out, we wanted to 
have a vehicle where we could do our investing, which is sort of wearinson.com. But we also wanted to be able to give back in a structured way. And that's why, with your help, in fact, Christy, we set up the, the Weir Anderson Foundation. And the, the purpose of the Weir Anderson Foundation is, is, is to really look at helping to drive gender equality through supporting uh, a whole range of organisations who are looking at the world through a gender lens. And so whether it's Global Sisters, a fantastic organisation that we support, and I, I also have the privilege to um, to chair, uh, that works with uh, women for whom mainstream employment isn't really an option, but who want to improve their lives and those of, of their families by starting micro-businesses. So, you know, we support them. We also support a lot of artistic projects, whether it's through the Sydney Film Festival, whether it's through documentaries. Um, we support the Greider Foundation. It's really about helping people who are looking to achieve progressive social outcomes and helping society in that way. I don't think that philanthropy should be about being the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. You know, and, uh, philanthropy is about having to helping to ch- society change the circumstances at the top of the cliff to make sure nobody goes over. And whilst you know, in many ways, society we've never been better educated, we've never been better off. Uh, in so many ways, we're also seeing growing inequality. Uh, We're still seeing the negative impacts of the lack of gender equality in our society, which leads to women not being considered equal. Disrespect for women is absolutely uh, a source of gender-based violence. So I think if we can drive towards a more equal society, particularly when it comes to gender, then we're actually uh, one step ahead of of really getting to a point of making a a better world altogether. And you were one of the women who contributed $1 million many years ago now to the Sydney Women's Fund and the International Women's Development Agency as part of the Women Moving Millions campaign for your philanthropic effort. And that really did demonstrate and lead the way for others to now contribute and engage in philanthropy. But you've also invested significantly, as you just pointed out, in businesses and people who are creating businesses to change the world. I believe you're one of the first outside investors in a company called AI Media that you've shared for many years, working with the wonderful and inspiring CEO, Tony Abrams. And last year, you took that company public. Can you talk about why you wanted to invest in AI Media, the, the very genesis of that idea, and what that company has transformed into today? Oh, absolutely. So when I was at OzStar, I first met Tony and uh, Tony, the the pay TV industry at that point wasn't required to do um, any captioning of its content because it had been a startup company. And the idea was that you didn't want to have too much of a a regulatory burden on a startup industry. And and perhaps that's sort of a theme we'll come back to when we talk about big tech a little bit later. Uh, and so uh, the, we'd started our pay TV, both Ozstar and Foxtel, without providing those captioning, where it, whereas uh, free-to-air channels were required to have significant amounts of captioning. Uh, that was about to change. And um, Tony was commissioned to put together a, a study of you know what the pay TV industry would need to do. And, and Tony from day one was advocating, look, you're out there actually providing an inferior service to what the free-to-airs do because, you know, 
captioning isn't available for people who may um, be hard of hearing or people for whom English is a second language, and yet you're charging for your service. Isn't it logical that you should be providing captioning on your channels so that um, everyone can have an opportunity to equally access that programming? And that just sort of, you know, struck me very early on as being a very logical (laughs) argument. And I just was, Tony's passion and his commitment to greater equality through ensuring access to content. And that was his co-founder, Alex Jones, who's profoundly deaf. And, you know, they, between them, they brought such an interesting perspective to this whole argument. So AI Media started then life as a business providing those captioning services. And I became friends with Tony and was really inspired by his passion to where he saw that business could go. So a couple of years after the business launched, uh, he was then wanting to bring in external capital and set up a proper board. So I invested early on. And as you say, then sort of 10 years later, in uh, September of, of 2020, in the middle of a global pandemic, why not? Let we, deci- we listed the company on the ASX. We now have offices um, around the world. We provide services to countries all around the world. Uh, we are essentially now a one-stop shop for captioning translation and transcription services. And that's allowing uh, us to not just provide access to television programming, which was sort of the genesis of the business, but also in 2019, when we decided to, to um, go down the path of listing, we were doing so because we believed that video was becoming this core communications tool for business and education all around the world. Now, that sort of, that thesis turned out to be correct. And of course, it's been totally accelerated Hmm. by the pandemic. And here we all are on Zoom meetings every day. And the reality is that as we communicate to each other over video, we can say, well, that's terrific. But the fact is that there's so much in communication that's not verbal. There is also a fact that we live in a multicultural societies and, you know, not all of us, if we're speaking in English, English is not the first language for everybody. Some people are hard of hearing or have sort of audio processing issues where, in fact, being able to see communication as well as hear it rapidly increases their comprehension. And if you're wanting to communicate effectively, then ensuring that everybody's got the tools to be able to understand what's being said not only makes um, business sense, very sound business sense, but it's also really, uh, our, it's all of, it's our right. It's our right to tr- absolutely be able to understand communication in the most effective way possible. So that has now allowed us to take this product well beyond broadcast and into business and into education. But we, over the time have, you know, continued to enhance our technology. And then in addition to listing in September of 2020, we also raised additional capital in April of last year uh, to fund the purchase of a company that we had at the top of our M&A list when we decided to list in 2019 called EEG Enterprises. And they're a technology company that massively adds to our technology stack and now means that we have essentially a full suite of services to offer anybody, whether they want the highest premium quality, which involves humans and technology, or the medium level, which is mostly technology with a bit of human, 
or just the technology only automatic speech recognition products that we can deliver to our customers. So we we essentially can meet any of their quality requirements and at different price points. And a lot of that is about leveraging the power of AI and using machine learning to improve uh, quality dictionaries. So for example, if you think of a live news broadcast uh, where we're providing uh, captioning. It's not just that we're listening to what's being said and then sort of re-speaking it. We can actually have massive dictionary that's been built up. Of course, we've been doing this now for 17 years. So we have massive dictionaries that are uh, basically built up for different use cases, different clients that we can leverage that dictionary and know that and use as much technology as possible and use those dictionaries to, for the, the automatic speech recognition to be able to recognise what the words are within the relevant context of that news broadcast. And that means that we can provide that service as effectively as possible. And of course, if you can have a very accurate transcription, live transcript of what's being said in the source language, then the accuracy of that transcript allows for automatic translation as well. But it's very much a case of, you know, you have to have quality in to have a quality output. So if you don't have a quality transcript, 99.9% accurate from day one, then you are, you're not going to be able to have effective translation. And that is a great outcome for us. And, you know, that AI media, that business is now expanding all over the world. It, it's such an incredible story of starting out with a fundamental belief that people should have access, all people should have access as a right, which you said earlier. Yeah, well, and, and the, you know, I mean, the United Nations Conventions on the Rights of People with Disabilities essentially lays those rights out. And, you know, there's over 130 countries, I think we are, who have now, who have ratified that, but they haven't all necessarily legislated now, as an example, India has just recently legislated uh, that. So the broadcasters in India are now having to start to provide captioning for the very first time. So that's, you know, a massive market growth opportunity for us, but we can bring all of our experience to bear to be able to help Indian broadcasters do that very effectively and, and cost effectively. But it is, I mean, this is the world that we live in today. We The, the, the technology that has been developed is so empowering for so many people, but we always have to consider the implications of how that technology is then used. And this, you know, it's very exciting to be part of this company that we know is actually making life uh, a lot better for so many end users, whether it's in a work context or whether it's in an entertainment context or education context. And it's, you know, the education context, you know, you feel particularly excited by because you know that once someone has an education and, and a good education, whatever else happens in their life, they never lose the benefit of that education. And that principle uh, that you apply there for your investment in AI media really does apply across all of your investments, doesn't it? You know, you're looking to invest in companies that are changing the world and changing the world for better. Can you talk a bit about some of the other projects you're working on? Fear is a very um, obvious, <laughs> an obvious one there. But, but no, I mean, I think what I was most inspired about when you and Adam were setting up SEER is that it, it comes back to when you were helping me set up 
our philanthropic foundation and you were working at the Sydney Community, uh, leading the Sydney Community Foundation and Sydney Women's Fund, that you said to me, SEER and enabling community-driven organisations to have access to data and be able to use data to make better decisions. That was solving a problem that you had when you were running the Sydney Community Foundation because your observation was that so many of these incredible community organisations that were working on the ground to try and solve some of the biggest problems facing our society today, there was a very much an unequal access situation that those organisations, I mean, they couldn't afford massive investments in technology. They couldn't afford the very expensive global consultants who may be able to come in. And then if they did get the consultants to come in and help them try and provide an evidence base for issues that they were seeing in their community, there wasn't necessarily knowledge transfer that happened. So using technology to democratise access to data and insights that come from that, because I guess data is like the the blood that runs through the veins of the internet, of the technology systems that now pervade, are pervasively available around the world. But if, if you can't access that data or you can't interpret it and apply it and use it to tell the story, then you, you essentially have an, in an, un, an unequal situation. And I think this democratisation of data is a really important proposition. It's really gaining uh, huge importance for data-led policy f- around the world with different government agencies at all different levels. But also there's this question of transparency, of citizens wanting access to data and data sovereignty being really core to part of a democracy. Why now do you think it's so important? If not now, when? I think because I think we've all, with perhaps some of the controversies that have gone around the rise of the big tech companies and people are understanding now the, the the concept that they are the product, right? And and that so many of these technology companies that are using their information and insights about their behavior to monetize and make money themselves. And people say, well, hang on a minute. Then they've also seen issues around the use of information, the targeting of information and the, that is leading to, you know, whether it's had impacts, very direct impacts on democracy because of misinformation that has arisen or whether it's led to behavioural problems and issues in terms of, you know, impacts on young emerging minds and uh, thinking about, you know, some of the uh, body image issues that arise out of, you know, people looking at Instagram or whatever. People are starting to see that as a society, data and the use of data and the use of information is having an impact on us at so many levels. So it's not that people, I think, want to see technology companies not able to continue to innovate and change. It's actually a conversation that says, hang on a minute, part of what you're doing is actually using information that is core to me. And I need to feel that I can have some level of control and access and be have some agency myself and that we have agency as a community about what happens with that data. Yeah, so interesting, this 
dark cloud over big tech looks like there's regulators around the world now that are going to start to look very closely at big tech. One of the turning points, I think, was Facebook's role in the Trump election. Do you think that was a wake-up moment for people around the world? Absolutely. I think people seeing how the micro-targeting that is this is possible on social media platforms can mean that there is it's very easy for false information or unequal information to sort of be spread. And, you know, we actually saw it in the Australian environment as well at the last Australian federal election where Clive Palmer spent approximately $80 million, did not get one actual candidate elected but definitely had a major impact on preference flows and uh, and some of the material that was being distributed through that was was patently false and it's happening again today with vaccine you know sort of false information about the pandemic and about vaccines that's driving you know in very micro targeted communities is leading to vaccine hesitancy and and uh you know, these are issues that can actually ultimately be life and death. And we need to have greater clarity around what's happening. The same thing, you know, with Facebook wondering, didn't anyone at Facebook stop to ask the question about why their uh, their bills were being paid in Russian rubles? Like, because they were coming from misinformation farms out of uh, some, some of those Ads were coming from misinformation farms out of um, Russia, et cetera. Mm. I mean, these are questions that need to be asked and considered. And the problem for regulators, of course, is that regulators often tend to have to be coming from behind, you know, and and this is the the balance and the paradox that, uh, that we all have to think about. Of course, we want technology companies to innovate and grow and be encouraged to do that without perhaps being sort of mired down in red tape or regulation while they're sort of trying to come up with ideas in the first place. The qu- the difficulty is at what point does then, when someone is creating a market, for example, so there's, you know, when Google started and all of a sudden Google within a short number of years had essentially created the online advertising marketplace, right? Through their the success of their business and their search engine and then with advertising that followed. Now, at what point do you try and say, well, hang on a minute, this could be leading to some unequal competition outcomes uh, while they're in fact continuing, they're, they're creating that market as they go. And, and that is an issue for regulators. And you know, I, I mean, it's, there's that classic footage of Mark Zuckerberg being interrogated by the US Senate with some of the senators who clearly didn't even know how the business model worked, right? And so you think, oh my goodness, how is how is that legislative body ever going to be able to effectively regulate a technology company when they the some of those participants in that conversation had not even the barest of understanding of how the the technology actually works. But I think that the point is, though, to your question, as citizens, people are actually starting to say, hang on, something needs to change here. And and I think that's got to be an active conversation between the technology sector and companies 
our community and civil society organisations representing citizens and, and our governments as well. I agree. Uh, and it's a fascinating time. I think that things have slightly shifted now. You saw the appointment of Lena Khan, who is the 32-year-old antitrust scholar and law professor in June by the President of the United States to the Federal Trade Commission. She's a fascinating person and, and as you say, a highly accomplished scholar who has some very, you know, and she's sort of through her scholarly work tracked uh, a lot of the development of Amazon and, and their impact on markets. And I think it's it's interesting because Biden didn't actually really campaign on these issues. Elizabeth Warren was the main presidential contender who had some very well articulated views um, on big tech. But Biden, President Biden, is certainly clearly has an agenda now, and is is pursuing that. I mean, the interesting question is that from a from an investor perspective, it could well be that there's a lot more value to be unlocked if some of the big companies were actually broken up. I mean, there's certainly plenty of analysis that suggests that Google could well be worth more if YouTube was separated out from from Google per se. There's certainly a lot of, and you can see in what um, Zuckerberg's trying to do with the creation of, of the top company of Meta, there is a question about would Facebook also or Meta be more valuable if um, Instagram was separated out again from from Facebook, et cetera, none of which seems very, you know, Zuckerberg seems obviously very opposed to that, but uh, it's, and he has such control over the shareholding base that it could be more difficult with them. Uh, But I think there's definitely a a question around that from an investor perspective that actually breaking up some of these companies may be a good move for investors. So I wanted to ask you, why is big tech a problem? Well, it, it's not necessarily that big tech is a problem. It's that perhaps sometimes they never stop, that they look at something and say, we can do this and that, that you can do something is great, but they don't always stop to ask whether they should. And it's the implications and the unknown consequences of developing technologies That is something that we need to continue to have conversations about as a community. And that means, I think, those technology companies being a bit more accountable and a bit more involved in the community as they go and they're developing their services. Absolutely agree. So thinking about the data age, you spoke about it, data being the lifeblood. What are the biggest opportunities, particularly for an investor such as yourself, uh, looking to back founders and ideas that are changing the world. Look, knowledge is power and insight is power. And at the moment, uh, you could argue that there's still a bit of a divide between communities in the, in the context, for example, of SEER and, and communities who are trying to solve problems. There is a gap between what communities can think about and and the evidence that they can produce about challenges that they're facing versus, say, information that governments might have or information that big corporates may have. There's sort of another issue that's particularly prevalent, prevalent in Australia, I think, where progressive governments in Australia have, in a lot of ways, disenfranchised the public, the public service. They've, they've outsourced a lot of what traditional policymakers in the public service would have previously done, and they've outsourced that to 
advice, big advice firms like, you know, the big five and, and so on. And that means that there isn't as much knowledge and insight within public service organisations advising government. And that I think is a problem because that's our community. They, they represent us as voters and it's a really important part of our democracy. So one way that we can try and address that, I think, is by ensuring that civil society and these local organisations have access to a lot of that data um, and that knowledge. I can also flip it into the film sector, for example, and some investments that I'm looking at at the moment, uh, which uh, is, for example, one new platform, which is essentially sort of like a workflow tool that leverages the power of AI to help writers deal with big complex story worlds and try and understand. It's not right, it's not about writing the scripts for them or, or anything like that, but it's actually about helping writers leverage the benefits of technology to think more deeply about story and the implications of the story universe. And that is really is really quite interesting. I mean there's been, and, and I, I'm quite excited by this um, particular company that we're, uh, we're working with at the moment, but there are other, like there are a lot of concerns, say, within the creative community that says, oh my gosh, AI, they're going to actually have AI writing scripts, they'll replace us. And if you actually look, um, there are some news services now that just go and analyse press releases and things like that and essentially just write, automatically write stories. Uh, without humans involved, but you can pretty much tell most of those when you read them, right? Data and AI is a tool, and there are some tools that will basically look at all of the scripts ever written and analyze those scripts to say, oh, look, clearly through the analysis of this script, this is how you write a horror film, or this is how you write a drama. The challenge with that, though, is that it does leave out that spark of human creativity and it also has a problem that if all you're doing is analysing all of the pre-existing scripts, if those pre-existing scripts and stories that have been approved in time gone by essentially tell stories that are come from a patriarchal lens or a racist perspective or don't truly look at the world in all of its complexity, then you're just going, that's going to tell you, oh, well, the best stories are this, which are based on patriarchal tropes or, you know, sexist tropes or racist tropes or whatever, we can't, again, we've got to be very, very careful about then the unintended consequences of saying, let's just go with technology and make it a better place. So that, that, is, that is one of the risks that come with the leveraging of technology into these environments. That's fascinating. Can you tell me a bit more about the creativity? Is it about the AI amplifying? the human creativity of those of those writers of the storylines absolutely so if you think about a very complex world say take a take the marvel universe for example to to take a big extreme right there are all of these different threads within that world of all of these incredible story whether it's you know there's ant-man over here and there is you know tony stark and you know iron man over here and then there's the captain Marvel, all of these different characters that have all of their own sort of backstories, how anyone tries to keep track of all of those things, right? Um, and there's Doctor Strange and there's all these different characters. 
and all of their arcs. And what we want as viewers, right, and if you're passionate about the Marvel Universe science, you actually want to ensure that there's thematic consistency and that there are that actually those characters act with the full knowledge of that universe that sits behind them. That's really hard for any writer. And if you think about it, the way a writer's room works on a big movie like that, you'll have a room with, you know, 10, 20 writers all sitting around kind of throwing in ideas to how this sort of story arc is going to work out. The, the most recent technological innovation they've been using is the post-it note right? <laughs> Sticking a post-it note up on the wall and kind of, you know, following scene by scene and the character arc and, and so on. Leveraging a technology uh, work tool that allows you to actually think about what happens if we change the story in this way? What does that mean for that other character? And then what does that mean for the production design people? And uh, what if we change that scene from being nighttime to daytime? What are the implications of that? How does that kind of flow on through to everyone from costume to props to uh, location reccees to what the, the rules might be for you're allowed to shoot at night in one particular location, but you're not, but you know, if you're going to shoot during the day, we've got big traffic problems, et cetera. All of these things that can, if you essentially are able to manage that in a more systemic way, using the benefits of technology and data, you know, there's lots of opportunities there. To be very, very clear, it's only ever a tool to assist with decision-making processes and creative processes. It will never, you will never want to allow that AI to rule the decision-making because it still has to come from the position of human creativity and human decision-making and the passion for the story and the emotional connection that's going to come between how that story arc plays out and what that character, the choices that that character makes. And so I think people, I think some people are worried about, you know, big studios wanting to leverage technology to replace writers, et cetera. You know, that is, that's just, that would be a foolish thing, I think, for studios to do with such incredibly valuable properties, but allowing them to leverage technological tools that make life easier for writers, that to me makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think it comes back to your original point, which is access. Access to all of that information to be able to tell better stories and to be able to engage in storytelling in a way that's fascinating, enriching and, and vast. Are there other exciting things that you're seeing in the AI and data space that really you think will shape the future for, uh, for how we think about engaging in uh, the things we take for granted on an everyday basis? Well, I think things like Indigenous data sovereignty and, in fact, community-driven data, data sovereignty, I think is actually really very important. And I know this is something that you're really focused on at SEER, but but it is an issue about ensuring that people have agency. And so whether it's it's Indigenous Australians or whether it is a local community, that being able to allow them to have access to information and, and data about what's happening in their own environment, but then also it's not just access to it, but it's also access to then the insights that come from that and some level of agency and control over that so that they're telling their own story in the way that they want to tell it 
and that it is not being, you know, interpreted and potentially used against them. And, you know, we've seen, you know, we go back to the that, you know, wonderful, wonderful book, Weapons of Math Destruction, which so clearly tells us some of the problems that come from big data sets being used without insight and understanding of the inherent bias that sits within those data sets. I think it's a very similar thing to say that when you analyse information down at a community level, it's really, really important that that community has a level of agency and involvement with that. And and I think that the the democratising tools, whether it's this, you know the SEER platform or whether it is ensuring access through AI, AI media or whether it's any of these other things that we're talking about, all of these things are ensuring that we as a community can essentially hold decision makers to account. And I think that is part of the movement towards holding technology companies to account for the implications of um, how they use our information and the uh, and how they information that they're benefiting from financially uh, that could be driving poor social outcomes. That's also part of that whole interconnected conversation. Totally agree. Thank you so much, Deanne, for your time today. Thank you for all of your investments, the work that you do to change the world and for the personal support you give myself and Adam as we grow our business together. We really appreciate it. Love your work, Christy. Thanks for the chat. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. This is Christy. And this is Adam on The Foil Podcast. Check us out on www.thefoil.ai and follow us on all the socials. Share this podcast out to anyone you think might be interested in what we, our guests, have to say. Let them know what we've got coming up. See you next time.